In a world of what are yous, welcome to the place where the answer is always human. My name is Natalie and you're listening to Some Kind of Brown, a podcast about mixed and multiracial life, current events, and ways to build the best life by a southern girl who's trying to figure it out for herself. I told all of you guys that this episode would be about the first two episodes of the Netflix show When They See Us. When I put out the polls a couple weeks ago on social media, a two-part review won over a review of each episode by one point. I knew the story of the Central Park Five before I watched this show. I knew it like I knew the story of Gilbert Harris and Will Norman from my episode Under the Confederate Flag. There were times when I was learning about this story that I teared up and grieved. But there is a difference between hearing or reading a story and watching it unfold, even if you know that it's TV. That feeling that you can't change the outcome, especially if you already know that outcome, hits you like a ton of bricks when you watch a show like this. But the story of Raymond Santana, Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salam, and Corey Wise needs to be told, but these episodes are too heavy for me. I might be a wimp, but the first episode had me in tears. I'm not gonna lie, I cried for a good bit, and you can probably hear what's left of me crying. I have heard lots of awful stories in my life, but this story, watching this show, got me. So I'm going to do a review of each episode separately, and you can watch it along with me, or listen to the reviews at your own pace. There will, of course, be spoilers because I can't review the episode without spoiling anything. And I'm not exaggerating when I say to be very, very sure you're ready before you watch. And even then, you might not be ready like I was. If you think that this is going to be sensitive for you, please watch it with somebody else. With all that said, let's get into it. The first episode is very simply called Part 1. It opens in Harlem, 1989. To be honest, it took all the courage I had to watch this. I put it off. I worked on my other podcasts I'm launching. I cleaned. I watched other movies. I did everything but watch this show because I knew that I was going to cry and I hate crying. From the very opening of the show, seeing the boys and their families and how they were having fun and just wanting to go out and be teenage boys, showing the boys in different places with their girlfriend, with their parents, with their siblings, and soon enough, all the boys get swept up into a large group of teens. They go out wilding or wilding, just being teenage boys goofing off in Central Park. They were messing around with some cyclists, which isn't polite, but not a huge deal. A couple of the boys, not the boys that we'll be talking about, attacked two white boys they came across. The police were called, and they scatter. As we find out later, around the same time, a white woman was attacked and raped between 10 and 11 p.m., they initially say, and the investigating officer, Linda Fairstein, comes into the police office in the morning. You see her covering the details, and one of the first things out of her mouth is, who's here? Did you pick up any gays or homeless or uh, anything? Maybe someone saw something. That is one of the first things she said. And that one line just lit an absolute fire in my chest because I knew this was not going to be good. And I, again, I already knew that was gonna happen, but hearing someone immediately looking for a scapegoat for this rape 
made me so angry. The police at the precinct harass and are very rude to the parents that show up initially. We found out that all the kids are about 14, and then they begin to investigate. Ferristine puts a lot of pressure on the police. She wants all the boys' statements by the next morning and automatically assumes that they were involved and wants to build a timeline. Because it all happened at the same time, Ferristine assumes that they are suspects. She fights to keep the case, even when they try to move it to the homicide unit, and she gets to keep the case. And in a conference with the officers at the precinct, Ferristine leaves no room for doubt that the boys did it and that there could have been more victims. She tells the officers to bring in every little thug who was there. I don't know how to articulate how disgusting here that is. We're talking about 1989, and these boys are just little thugs. Because there was a rape, a brutal rape, and Trisha, I believe her name is, ended up in the hospital in a coma. It is a horrifying attack. But to automatically assume that these black and Hispanic boys had something to do with this crime is something that would never happen had the boys been white. We know this. We've seen, even in our recent history, we're talking about this year, last year, where a white person is treated very differently if they commit the same crime as a black person. And this is 1989. It is so much worse they don't even see these boys as human. There's another line that Fairstein says in the episode that hit me really hard. These are not kids. They raped this woman. She's so on fire because this woman is raped. And believe me, I am a victim of sexual assault and rape. Believe me when I say I know what that anger feels like when you have someone who's gone through the same thing. But it is unconscionable to immediately assume that these 14 to 16 year old boys did this crime. And the thing is, you find out in this episode that everybody knows these kids didn't do it. They're so desperate. They mention the media following this crime. They're so desperate, dependent on somebody, that they frame these children. These are babies. They are 14 to 16. They don't even know what rape really is. It one of them knows it has something to do with sex. Some of the boys don't even really know what that means. And the police officers manipulate the system to make sure that they could have the kids alone. These are minors. Kevin was 14 and his parents left, I think, to get medicine. I don't remember exactly. And the police get excited. One of the police officer literally says it's like Christmas. Ray's mom is taken out of the room. And they tell her they're just taking a break. You can see the fear in the kids. The fear of the parents. The absolute chaos of what's going on. Tron's dad even tries to explain, like, my kid is young. He doesn't know about sex. He doesn't even talk to girls. How can he commit rape? And you see the police feeding the story's narrative to the teens until they can coax them to get their story straight. Coax them to get close to a confession. Because Bobby, Tron's dad, kind of puts up a fuss, they dig up his past, and they threaten him to expose his past, I'm assuming some kind of criminal past, to his employer so he can lose his job. He tells him to persuade his son to confess. So Bobby tells Tron to say what they want him to say. Tell him, and it's the only way that you can get out. This line I'm about to read that he said to his son because of his fear, because of the realities of the justice system back then. 
was when the police want what they want, they will do anything. They lie on us. They look us up. They will kill us. I ain't gonna let them kill my son. Now, in 2019, it's been 30 years, we still have police officers doing the same thing. And that, I think, is why it hits so hard. Black people and people of color have been fighting for so long. And it looks like we're not learning from our past mistakes. From 1989 to 2019, there should have been a marked difference. But the only difference now is that we don't see convictions. We see black boys getting killed for running, for looking suspicious, for being at the wrong place at the wrong time, for playing with a toy gun that they took the tip off of alone in the park. I don't know what to say to express how I'm feeling. We'll call it frustration for now, at least. As the episode continues, you see Fairstein and the other officers trying to do everything possible to manipulate the stories to make it fit. There were a couple of parents that I really, really felt almost proud of, I guess you could say. Ray's dad shows up when he gets off of work. Questions why his son was alone. Questions why the police are encouraging him to lie, even in front of him. Ray says he made a deal, and he tells him what they want. His father is mystified. When he left, his kid was alone and innocent. When he came back, his son had a confession that he was involved in a rape. And in front of him, they tried to write this story, write this narrative, and they make him believe that there's nothing that he can do to stop it. All of the kids are abused. They are left in these interrogation rooms without supervision, without parents, without lawyers. Some of them are physically assaulted. But then you have the good cop, quote unquote, come in. Kevin gets to see his sister, Angie, and they force her or coerce her to sign witness to his confession, telling her that it's the only way he can go home. And Kevin breaks down and begs for her to sign. He says he wants to go home. He just wants to go home. So of course she signs the paper. Yusuf's mom comes and finds out that her son has been in the interrogation for hours without a lawyer and without a parent present, obviously because she is there now. And they know he's younger than 16. They try to tell her he's 16 because he's 16 on his bus pass. He didn't lie about his age, but he told them he was younger. And Fursan asks her, well, let me see a birth certificate. Of course, she didn't bring a birth certificate with her. But this mom, I hope, obviously, I hope this never happens. I would never witness anything like this. Or if I have children, my children are never at the center of something like this. But I hope that I would react like her. She grabbed her son, threatened to go to the New York Times and tell them that they were interrogating a minor. When she walks away with Yusuf literally clinging to her, she says, shame on you. And that is, to me, just not enough. Corey, who went with Yusuf just to support his friend, you see him physically assaulted. They force him to confess they literally feed the stories to these boys. They use them against them. Kevin said that you did this. Ray already knows that you did it. You watched. You did this. And of course, these boys are scared. They've been in there for hours. They've been separated from their parents. And they lie because that's the only thing they know to do. And they are being told that's the only way that they can get out that night. The episode ends with all the boys in one room. And there's silence for a little bit. And Kevin breaks it and says, I, I'm sorry, I lied. 
All the boys sit down and say, I lied too, and apologize. Kevin says, why, why are they doing us like this? And Ray says, what other way they ever do us? Of course, none of them got to go home, and unfortunately their nightmare was just beginning. Those last two lines, to me, sum up so much and say so much in so little words. What other way they ever do us? I'm so sorry that I can't be upbeat about this, and if I sounded like I was crying the whole time, it's because it's so hard for me to talk about this, and I can't bring myself to be my normal bubbly self. So if that was hard for you, I apologize. There's just no way for me to be sarcastic or bring any humor into this situation. I hope that you can all bear witness with me at whatever pace you can. I'll be back next week with part two. I do have some collabs scheduled, but this series will continue each week as a bonus episode if we need to. But rest assured, I will be covering this. Because like I said, the story of these boys, who are now men, needs to be told. Their lives matter. The suffering they went through matters. I have quite a few people to thank this week. Thank you to Sade Glow from the Off Screen Babble podcast, the Carol Sisters, and to Kay Cooley for your sweet reviews. I'll read just one, but I'll give you all a shout out when I get a charger for my iPhone. Kay Cooley says, Finding this podcast has been so affirming for me as a biracial woman who is white passing. I've struggled my entire life with identity issues and am just now finding a community with other multiracial folks who actually understand what it's like navigating between two cultures. Natalie has a gift for intertwining her personal experience with each of her guests to dive deep into sensitive topics with grace and humor. I've learned, I've laughed, and seen myself reflected, which has always been hard for me in each episode. Thank you for sharing this work with the world. Thank you so much, Kay Cooley. You will never know how much that review means to me. I also want to thank William B. from Instagram for contributing monetarily to this podcast. And whoever has bought merch this week, please, if you do buy merch, take a picture for me so I can see. You can DM me if you don't want to post it, whatever. I'm just so excited that you wanted to have a piece of that merch. This podcast means a lot to me, and I'm glad some of you are getting something out of it too. If you've gotten this far, just know that all of you are why I keep this podcast going. Again, I'm sorry for the tone in this episode. It was very difficult. I can't guarantee it's going to get any better, but it's important. Thank you to Purple Planet for the use of the song Love Life, and I'll see you next week with some more Shades of Brown.